0: We have seen a lot of ups in David's life so far. He's gone from shepherd boy to uh, anointed king to giant slayer, and today we're going to see a little bit of uh, his life taking a turn. Uh, We all tend to measure our lives a lot of time by a lot of the high points and low points that are in our life, and often the experiences that we experience can kind of become, I'll use the illustration tonight, of pillars pillars in our life that kind of become these things that we measure the quality of our life. These high points uh, become things that we remember, things that we kind of, uh, if we were going to write a biography of our, our life, these might be the chapters of our life. So uh, maybe uh, finishing schooling, or getting married, or uh, getting a certain promotion, or reaching a certain status in your career, or opening up your own business, these kinds of, of wonderful highlights of our life, we, they tend to litter our life, and to be honest, we kind of, uh, when we look back at the, the history of our lives, these tend to be uh, the large points that would sort of, if you, in a way, define our life. And we've been following through David's uh, life, and we've seen a lot of high points. As I mentioned, we've seen him uh, be uh, chosen to be king and anointed above all of his, uh, over his brothers. And then we see him coming, and he, he, he stands before Goliath and comes not with a sword, but in the name of the Lord, right? And, and he slays the giant with a, a sling and stone and then his, the giant's own sword, but today we're going to experience kind of a hard right, if you will, in David's life, and we're going to experience some low points in David's life. So he's gone from the uh, anointed king, the giant slayer. He's been appointed as the court musician for King Saul. Uh, he, he gains a wife in the process. He gets a royal best friend, Jonathan. Uh, In the process, everything has seemed to be going smooth. But now, in David's life, we're going to experience what author Seth Godin calls the dip. And applied to a spiritual context, the dip is a time of testing through which pressure-filled circumstances reveal and refine the status of our faith in real time. We just sang the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness Lord unto me. And we're going to experience that uh, through the life of David. These times are what we call the dip tonight, are some of the darkest days in our life. They're sort of the times in between the pillars we don't ne- necessarily like to talk about, but be- also become defining points. And I'm convinced uh, through personal experience, and some of you may be wa- have walked through, or maybe even walking through some of these times right now in your life, that oftentimes I'm convinced that these times are necessary in our life if we're going to grow deeper in our relationship with God. If we want to have a dynamic relationship with our God and experience his faithfulness, there needs to be times where we call out to him for that faithfulness. And so what we're going to see through the context of our narrative tonight. We're going to go through several chapters. We're going to try to go through it rather quickly because we've got a lot to cover, but we're going to be in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 19 tonight. So I invite you to open up your scriptures to 1 Samuel chapter 19 as we begin to look into David's life. And we're going to see tonight an incredible stream of losses in David's life. Life. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time of study together tonight. Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity we have to open up your word, the word of God. Lord, I pray that this would not just be another lesson in history, Father, or just a remembrance of something that we've studied in the past. But Lord, that you would allow the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of God to interact in our hearts, Lord, and to change the way that we think and the way that we believe in you. Father, I pray that you would help us to call out to you in times of need, Lord, and to understand that you are truly all that we need. And Father, I pray that you would help us to be satisfied in you and to learn to trust in you alone. Father, thank you for allowing these times to happen in our lives. Lord, they are not times that we like to remember, but Lord, sometimes we need them, Lord, for we need you. And Father, I pray that you would help us to learn from this tonight and from your scripture as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look tonight at uh, a stream of incredible losses for David in his life. First of all, it's in 1 Samuel chapter 19, beginning in verse 8, the scripture says this, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines. Now just by way of reminder, David is now living in the house of Saul. He has um, Michael, uh, Saul's daughter, as his wife, and he's working In uh, he's working for Saul. Now he is his day job is court musician. He's playing for Saul, but from time to time he's also been given a captainship or commander over a, a certain sect of the army. And so here is wartime again in verse eight. And David goes out to fight against the Philistines. Continuing in verse eight, it says and slew them a great slaughter, and they fled from him. And an evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul. And he sat in the house with his javelin in his hand, and David played with his hand. Here's David here playing his harp in the presence of King Saul. This was his day job, and the evil spirit comes upon Saul. He's got his javelin in his hand. Verse 10 says, Saul sought to smite David even to the wall with the javelin. But he slipped away out of Saul's presence, and he smote the javelin into the wall, and David fled and escaped that Night. You see, after David's success at the battle uh, over Goliath, David rises to uh, prominence in the uh, military, becomes a military commander. We saw that a chapter ago in verse 18 in Saul's army. And Saul is running David on these missions. He's going out, he's destroying the enemy at that time, which was the Philistines, and he's being strengthened by God, he's being blessed by God. He's becoming, he's being successful, and as God continues to be with David and strengthen him and give him victory over his foes, there becomes an increasing jealousy from Saul. We looked at this last week, where Saul hears the song uh, that David slays ten thousands and him only thousands, and he becomes very jealous. Now. At first read, when you look at this verse here, it says that in verse 9, that an evil spirit from the Lord is upon Saul. Now, we understand in context that God does not cause people to sin. That's outside the boundaries of what we know the scripture teaches about God. James chapter 1, verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempt he any man. So to say that this, uh, to this passage is to be understood that, well, the reason why Saul acts the way that he does is because of God. God causing him to be this sinful man. That's not, that's not what we see. That's not consistent with scripture. So when the Bible says that he's... Um, uh, that an evil spirit comes from the Lord. What, how, how are we to understand this? How are we to understand what's going on in Saul's heart? Well, I think it's illustrated several times in Scripture, One, in, one once in Romans chapter 1, another time in Job, and the whole entire story of Job. That, but in context of Scripture, we see it time and time, 10, that oftentimes God allows evil to, to happen in someone's life. Not that God causes it, but that God allows it Several times in Romans chapter 1, it tells us that it happens as a repercussion to a relentless sinfulness. The Bible says that God gives people over to a reprobate mind because of their consistent relentless sin against their warring against God. Oftentimes, we see this as a process of refinement. We can kind of see that in Job's life. But either way, this evil spirit from the Lord, I don't think should be written or, or, or should be understood as it's from the Lord in the sense that that's where its source is found. But rather, it is from, in a sense, that God allows it to happen. Now, we know that there's a spiritual enemy. The Bible makes that very clear. And the spiritual enemies of God's children want nothing more than to destroy and to consume. The Bible uses this idea of Satan being a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The Bible also talks about that Satan's goal is to kill and destroy. That's his desire. So oftentimes, God in His sovereignty allows these evil forces to happen in someone's life, creating, I believe, an opportunity for His will to transpire. Now, God doesn't, in a sense, didn't consume Saul, forcing him to do these things. I think that it's just God allowing this to happen. Evil, uh, evil things, uh, evil spirits coming into Saul's life as judgment. For Saul's relentless disobedience. Saul continually, continually disobeyed. Continually had an unrepentant heart. And so God finally says, you know what? Enough is enough. Instead of my will being done, your will be done, Saul. And God gives him over to these evil spirits. So in a fit of rage, Saul launches his javelin, says he's sitting in his palace with a javelin by his side, launches that javelin at David with the aim of killing him in cold blood. says he wanted to pin him against the wall. But Saul misses entirely. David's able to escape. But what happens is that something else dies that day. Saul missed David but dealt a death blow to David's career. Because at this point, David, his income, his livelihood, all the meals that he ate were all in Saul's house. He was part and parcel of Saul's family, eating at his table, married to his daughter, and taken care of as a person who is a a part of Saul's family, a part of the royal family. But at this point in his life, due to Saul's relentless disobedience, the evil that has come upon his heart, and now this. Murderous rage. Although David escapes, Saul does deals a death blow to David's um, career, and from this point on, we're going to see as we continue to study through David's life. From this point on, for many, many, uh, many, many years, uh, David is going to be on the run. David is going to li- he's going to leave the, uh, the palace in Gebeah. He's not going to get back into that, that kind of living for quite some time, and he becomes a nomad. He's going to wander through the deserts. He's going to be in caves. He's going to insert himself into the Bedouin community that's there, and he is going to be constantly on the run. Now, I've used some of these pillars tonight as some illustrations tonight. But what happens is that God allows, in this first stream of loss, for David's career to come tumbling down. And that's all that happens for his career. Now, David is on the run at this point. David no longer has the security of finances. He no longer has a roof over his head. He no longer has the food at the king's table. David is on the run, and the pillar of his career falls. The next stream of loss that we see is just a little bit further. Let's read on in verses 11 through 17 here in chapter 19. Scripture continues to say this, Saul also sent messengers unto David's house. Now David leaves the the palace and goes to his home. Verse 11 says that he went to David's house, he sent messengers uh, to David's house to watch him and to slay him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, if thou save thy life tonight, tomorrow thou shalt be slain. So Michael let David down through a window and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put the pillow of goat's hair for his bolster and covered it with a cloth. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he is sick. And Saul sent the messengers again to see David saying, bring him, uh, bring him to me in the bed that I may slay him. And when the messengers were come in, behold, there was an image in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair for a bolster. And Saul said unto Michael, Why hast thou deceived me so, and sent away mine enemy, that he may escape? And Michael answered Saul, He said unto me, Let me go. Why should I kill thee? Now here... In an attempt to catch David at home, Saul sends, the Bible says, messengers to slay him. These are assassins, royal assassins, come to kill David in his home. Now, Michael knows, she catches wind that this is going to happen, and she gives him just a short window to escape. Lets him down, the Bible says, uh, out of the window, and he escapes. And trying to give David time to escape the city, to evade these royal assassins, Something interesting takes place here. Michael uses here, the Bible says, uh, an image. It's the idea of a teraphim. These are some uh, images that we found. Uh, uh, the, these are what, what, what would, would probably have been used uh, by Michael, probably the one on the right more. But these were kind of um, household objects that were used historically in this time. They were used, they are made out of clay and, and other things, carved sometimes out of wood and stone. They were sort of like um, uh, ancient pictures. Now, they couldn't take pictures of their family members, but when family members passed on, many times they would carve out these um, images and place them in their homes by way of remembrance, to remember grandma and grandpa, and to remember Uncle Bill and Uncle Ted and and all of our families together. But what would happen is that oftentimes these would become part of, if they were um, not careful, uh, pagan cultures would use these as ancestor worship, and they would worship these as part of their worshiping, uh, as part of their, their worship experience. This still happens today, by the way, in many countries in Asia. But what would happen is that I believe that this is what probably something um, that Michael would have used. She would have taken something like this, placed it in the bed. Obviously, she uses some goat hair to kind of make it look realistic. So when these assassins come in and they see David sleeping, she goes, oh, you have to go away. He's sick. Well, they go away, and then they're sent back. And Saul says, you know what? I want him dead so much so that even if he's sick, I want you to carry the bed all the way to me, and I want to kill him myself. So that's what they do. They go in, they, they discover, well, this isn't really, actually really a person. This is a, a, a statue, and it's made, made to look like a person. Of course, they bring Michael into Saul's presence, and he's, 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 he's very, very upset. Why have you given my enemy the opportunity to escape me? And at this point, Michael, instead of taking the, taking the blame and saying, well, I love my husband, and I'm faithful to him, and I think what you're doing is wrong, Dad, she is afraid for her own life, and at this point, in a sense, betrays David in saying that the reason why I did this, dad, is because he threatened to kill me. That's what the last verse says. She says, let me go. Why should I kill thee? So she says, he made a death threat. The reason why I did this, dad, is because David threatened to kill me. Now, what happens from this point on, and we can read historically throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, is that from this point on, Michael no longer has a relationship with David. In fact, about six chapters of following, in chapter 25, David actually remarries another guy named Philati. And at this point, David is alone. He has no career promise, he has no income, he has no... Uh, Place to lay his head. He's constantly on the run. And now, this is gonna represent family. He has no family, all right? So God allows that pillar to fall. No career, no family. He's still on the run. God allows that pillar in his life to fall. Then we see in the end of chapter 19, David runs to what I would call a confidant. Chapter 19, verse 18. Let's continue reading. It says, So David fled and escaped and came to Samuel, to Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and dwelt in Nioth. And it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. And Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God was upon them, and the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then he went also to Ramah and came to a great well, that is in Seku, and he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth in Ramah. And he went thither to Nioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all the day and all the night, wherefore, they say, is Saul among the prophets. Now, the first time I read through this, I had totally forgotten this portion of the story, but it's quite incredible in how God intervenes. So David's on the run. He goes to his confidant, Samuel. Samuel's hometown is Ramah. They go to a place in that area called Nioth, and there, there's a revival going on. Samuel is prophesying He is distributing God's word to the people, and Saul sends, again, those messengers. Don't read messengers, read assassins. That's what they are. He sends his first band of assassins. They go, and they're going to take out Samuel and David, because Samuel is harboring David. And so these assassins go, they find out where he is, and as they approach this revival, the Bible says that the Spirit of God comes on them, and they begin preaching. Can you imagine that? These guys are walking up, maybe a knife behind their back getting ready, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God comes upon them, and they go, thus saith the Lord, and they begin preaching at this revival. Well, they return and say, we couldn't get near them. As soon as we got there, we started preaching. So Saul says, you know what, you guys are useless. He sends a second batch of assassins. They go. The Bible says the same thing happens. The Spirit of God comes upon them as they try to take out the man of God and David, and then they're preaching. The third group of assassins comes. The same thing happens. Saul says, you know what? Enough is enough. Ramah's pretty close. I showed you on the map here. Gebeah is where they are. It's just a few miles. I'm going to head myself, and I'm going to take care of this. And so he goes, and he asks, where's David? Where's Samuel? They go up into this area. Saul comes up, and as he approaches, the scripture says, he is also taken over by the Spirit of God. And as he does, he begins to prophesy, and he prophesies in verse 24 in a manner unlike the rest of them. I'll just put it that way. And um, the people are so amazed, wait a minute, is Saul a prophet now? What's interesting here is that God is protecting his man. He's re- protecting his, uh, his future king, and God is taking over and proving to, him, proving to David something that we'll see here in, in just a few moments. But as these as these uh, uh, these events are unfolding, something also happens with David's life. David is not able to continue to stay there. Now this revival is coming to an end. David knows I can't stay here any longer. There's also been there's already been three attempts on my life. Now the king himself is here to kill me, and if I linger still, I am going to be killed. So David sees the opportunity as. The assassins are the assassinations are foiled, and even Saul is um, indisposed at the moment. He takes the opportunity to flee, and God allows the pillar of a confidant, I use the shield as an example, to to fall. So there's nothing left there. Now, if you would continue on to chapter 20, chapter 20. Um, just in brief, because we won't have time to be able to study the entire chapter at length. We'll look at a few verses here at the end, but he takes the opportunity to return back to Gebeah. Now, he knows that Saul's not there because Saul's indisposed, so he runs back to Gebeah, and there he meets up with his best buddy, Jonathan. Jonathan's the prince. He's Saul's son, and there he is going to ask for his help. In the first 40 verses of chapter 20, he has a discussion with Jonathan. And in brief, he says, Jonathan, your dad is trying to kill me. And of course, Jonathan doesn't believe him at first. Oh, my dad wouldn't do anything like that. But I'm going to find out myself. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going I'm to ask dad, and I'm going to figure, I'm going to get to the bottom of this, because we're buddies. And uh, what I'm going to do is, I have this... Um, uh, practice session coming up where I shoot arrows and my uh, my, my, uh, uh, my confidant, my, uh, my, my servant goes out and fetches the arrows. And here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna shoot these arrows and I'm gonna give my servant uh, some instruction. I'm gonna tell them that if uh, he gets up to where, I, where the arrow is and I tell him to keep going, that's your signal to keep running, David, because my dad truly is trying to kill you. So he goes in, he has a conversation with his dad, at first, his dad says, oh, no, that's not, that's not what I'm doing. But he pushes him further, and he reveals, I am trying to preserve our lineage. I'm trying to preserve you as King Jonathan, and I need to take out David. Of course, this breaks Jonathan's heart, and he goes out into the courtyard. Let's pick up in verse 41 of chapter 20. Um, Actually, let's go back a little bit far, farther. Let's go up to uh, verse 38. Verse 38 says, Jonathan cried after the lad. He shot the arrow. Make speed. Hey, stay not. And Jonathan led uh, Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the lad knew not anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. He had given instruction to his, his servant, keep going, keep going. And that is trying to signal David to run. Verse 40, Jonathan gave his artillery to the lad and said to him, go carry them to the city. Now it's just David and Jonathan together. In verse 41, it says, as soon as the lad was gone, David arose out of a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed himself three times. And they kissed one another and wept one with another until David exceeded. And Jonathan said to David, go in peace for as much as we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying the Lord be between me and thee and between thy seed and uh, between my seed and thy seed forever and he arose and departed and Jonathan went into the city they understood Jonathan understood what was happening and in signaling David to run he knew that this would be the end of their relationship as they know it David and Jonathan here have a bittersweet time of remorse and knowing that they would not be able to be the close friends that they once were. And they wouldn't know what the future would hold but they had a promise and they had made that promise we saw that just a few chapters earlier where they had promised that they would protect one another's families and we'll see that come to fruition in a few stories here when we see David's life as he becomes king. But at this point in time David and Jonathan part ways understanding that there probably wouldn't be another time like this where they would have their friendship and in fact the truth is this would be the last time david and jonathan would ever see each other again this side of heaven for david and jonathan would never never again as it recorded in scripture have a relationship talk with one another to hug, to high-five, to be the best friends that they were. And this would be the last time their friendship would have a, a time of bonding. And so God allows the pillar of friendship, I would call, to fall. God is slowly stripping away all of these things in David's life, his career, his family, his confidant, his friend. And the very last one that would be stripped away is his reputation, in, in um, 1 Samuel chapter 21, David flees, he goes to a place called Nob, he talks to a priest there, uh, he's, he eats a bread from the table of showbread, because like I said, he's got no career, he's got no prospects, he's on the run, nowhere to eat, nowhere, no money to buy anything. God provides for him that way. And then in verse 8, David, has the, David thinks, you know what, where can I go that... That, that Saul will not find me. Everywhere I go, he seems to find me, sending assassins after me. This guy is running frantically for his life. Where can I go? And he thinks, I know where I can go. There's a famous city that probably uh, none of the people of Israel would ever think to look for me, and he thinks of a town called Gath. Now, if you remember, there was a certain famous fellow in David's life from the city of Gath. and he guesses? Goliath, yes, Goliath, the giant that he slew was from Gath. And so David decides, I'm going to run outside the boundaries of Israel It's some 25 miles from the Gebeah where he was in jo- with Jonathan, and he runs some 25 miles to Gath. Now let's look at here in verse 10 of chapter 21. It says, David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul and went to Akish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Akish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing one to another of him in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David laid up these words in his heart and was sore afraid of Akish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior before them. And feigned himself mad in their hands, and scrabbled on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle fall down upon his beard. Then said Akish unto the servants, Lo, ye see the man is mad, wherefore then hath ye brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that ye have brought this fellow to play the madmen in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house?" So David here flees from Gebeah to the city of Gath, a Philistine city where the king, Achish, lives. And there, filled with fear and anxiety because immediately he's recognized, this is David, the giant killer. He's the one they call king, the one they sing his praises. Obviously, that song was such a hit song. It had made it all the way, all the way down into the Philippine, uh, uh, Philistine lands. Uh, and they had heard that song, and they say, here he is. Let's bring him before the king. Now, probably we can guess that they might think this is an opportunity for us to take out this giant slayer. And, of course, David, filled with fear and anxiety, obviously probably very physically tired, very emotionally distraught, he is brought before Ackish. And he believes that if he's able to uh, uh, a fake insanity, then somehow maybe they'll let him live. And that's what he does. When they go to get him, he's at the city gates. And the Bible says that he feigns madness. He feigns that he's insane. And he begins to scrabble using his nails, crawling at the city gates, allowing all the spit to run down his beard as if he had gone insane. And as he plays the madman in front of the king, the king is so disgusted that the Bible says here, he says, do I have need of madmen? You can almost hear uh, the, the ring in his voice, almost like a, a, a stab, uh, if you will. I've got enough mad people around me, right? I, I, I'm surrounded by crazy people. Do I need more of them? Get him out of here. The ruse works. David leaves the court of the king, but in the sight of all the people that once feared David, his reputation. Is lost. No longer do they see David as the giant killer, the one to be feared, the slayer of ten thousands. They dismiss him out of their court like the court jester. This guy's mad. Get him out of here. And the pillar of reputation, how people see him, falls. And here is David no career, no family, no confidants. No friends, no reputation. How far he has fallen in just a few weeks. David goes from the employed commander of armies living in the palace, eating from the king's table, married, living a stable life to a separated, unemployed, friendless vagabond playing the fool in the land of the pagans, the Philistines. What happened? What in the world is going on in David's life? I believe it's in this season of life that some of the most beautiful Psalms of David are written. It's in this season of life that God allows David to learn the most important lesson of all. David learns what he truly needs. Author and Holocaust survivor Corey Ten Boom said this You may never know that God is all we need until God is all we have. Many years ago, a song was written by Babbie Mason based on a quote by a preacher long ago, and the song goes like this God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. How many of you heard that song before? An incredible song. But I believe this is what God is teaching David. He is teaching David as he can teach us tonight that a Christian should learn to trust in God alone by understanding really three dangers that we see illustrated in this context that we've set. If you're taking notes, the first danger is this, what I would call the danger of the trade. And what we can learn from this is that as long as you lean on things, you won't learn to lean On God, the Israelites were warned of this kind of false sense of security in Jeremiah chapter Jeremiah chapter two, by the prophet. In verse thirteen, he says to this: "For my people have committed two evils; they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water." See, we are constantly inundated in our culture, in the world that we live in, to lean on things for security. And oftentimes we make our lives all about collecting those things, leaning our on our careers for security, on our education for security, on entertainment, on relationships, on our children, on our health. We're seduced to believe that if we collect enough of these things in life, the things that are made available to us in this life, then our lives will have joy, they'll have meaning, and they'll have security. God warns a church in the book of Revelation, the church of Laodicea, who believes that in Revelation chapter 3, God says to them, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried with fi- gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of the nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. I heard recently from a pastor who said that every person has just as much of God as they want. You see, we serve an infinite God who has done everything he can to build a relationship with us. He has not left us here to be forsaken. He has begotten his only son to bleed and to die for us, to make way for a relationship to have. And he has left the incredible gift of his word to us so that we might know him and that we might honor him. And the problem is, is that we oftentimes do not have an appetite for God because we are full of this world. And what David will learn is that if he leans on those things, if he leans on a career or a family or a friend or a confidant or his reputation, he will have no room in his heart for leaning on God. And we must learn that we cannot trade the things of this world for the infinite God that we serve. And in David's life, God pulls all of those things away All of those things that he could have used to trade his relationship for God for. And he asks him this question. David, am I enough to satisfy? The second thing, if you're taking notes, a second thing that we can learn is the danger of what I call the danger of the horizon. And the lesson to be learned here is that as long as you focus only on what you can see, you won't learn to walk in faith. This going hand in hand with our lives being all about the things of this world. David's anointed to be the next king of Israel. It hadn't happened yet. Think back to him sitting playing the harp in the court of King Saul. He had been anointed, he was going to be the next king of Israel, but it hadn't happened yet. It required faith for David to believe that that was going to happen, and it had required faith for him to pursue God's plan for his life. Now, David's life had become a place of comfort in the house of King Saul. He had a wife, he had a career, he ate at the king's table, and David's life had become a place of comfort in the house of the king, but that wasn't the place God had for him. Now, obviously, he can lament the loss, but David wasn't chosen to sit At the feet of Saul, he was chosen to sit on the throne that Saul was sitting on. That was what God's plan was for David's life. Not to sit comfortably by the king's side and play an instrument. His plan for him would be to replace that king on that throne. That was David's calling. That was David's uh, anointing, God's plan for him. Oftentimes in our life, the familiar can make us comfortable, safe, and it robs us of what God is yet to do in our lives. I say this not, not lightly. I say this in all due respect. But you know, in a crowd this big, of a church this historic, there could possibly be someone in here tonight that has become comfortable in their relationship and in their walk with God. So much so that they haven't taken a real step of faith in years. And if that's you, I wanna tell you that you are missing out on what it means to walk with God. You become comfortable playing the harp for the king when God has called you onto something greater. So God pulls away the comforts that he had his career, his family, his confidants, his friends, his reputation. And he says to David, David, am I enough to satisfy? Will you walk with me in faith? Last one, if you're taking notes, is what I would call the danger of the proxy. And what we can learn from this danger is that as long as you seek only the temporary, you won't learn to identify the permanent. In the ancient world, the ancient Romans discovered an incredible metal. It revolutionized the way that everything was done in Rome. They found this metal, they called it plumbum. And what was amazing about this metal is that it was incredibly easy to mold. It was malleable. You could actually melt this metal over a campfire. It was so easy to use. And they would create jewelry, and they would create bowls and cups and goblets. They even used it as piping to pipe in water from streams into their bathhouses. It had a sweet flavor, so they began to add it to their food and to their wine. And it was an incredible thing. It was actually coined the plastic of the ancient world. It was an amazing new technology. It was the most useful metal in the entire world. You know what we call this metal today? Lead. What was simultaneously feeding the Romans was also at the same time killing the Romans. I think our modern world is still so much in danger of this type of thing. Things that we pursue in the temporary that are simultaneously feeding us and killing us at the same time. This applies so much to our spiritual life as it does our emotional and physical life. We stop at the temporary. We're fixated on the here and the now. We're fixated on the things that give us immediate pleasure. What do people think of me? How do I compare to the people across the street? What are those parents over there doing with their kids? What am I missing out on? What about that new thing? We have to be involved in this new club or this new group. And every decision is centered on the here and now. And although it feels like it is giving you life, it is actually killing you. Our lives are overtaxed, overburdened. We are overcommitted. And oftentimes, as one pastor puts it, we overestimate in the short term and we underestimate what can be done in the long term. And we build our lives all about right now. And we forget that we serve a God in eternity. A God who is with us now, but wants us to live not for the here and now, but for the eternity. And what I fear oftentimes is that we train not just us and our lives, but the next generation to seek the here and now and to not think about the eternity. And Jesus is screaming at us from the pages of Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And so God allows all of these things to be pulled away. Every temporary reprieve from David's life and says, David, am I enough to satisfy? And amazingly, David responds. If you have your scripture still open, I invite you to open up to the Psalm, Psalm 142. Psalm chapter 142. David responds to these questions, I believe, when God asks him, am I enough to satisfy? Psalm chapter 142 is an incredible prayer that he writes from a cave. And in verse five, he says this, I cried unto, the Lord, unto thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. You've allowed everything to be stripped from my life. I have nothing. I am alone in a cave. But God, you are enough for me. You are my safety. You are my portion. I have all that I need. You know, I think as believers today, it's even more critical that we learn this truth, that God alone is enough to trust in, God is all that we need, and that we must seek him with our whole heart. That God may allow a time in your life, and you know what? There might be some people right now who are in the middle of a life like this, where you feel as if God has begun to move in your life, to remove the comfort, the temporary the things that you are holding dear and God is moving in your life and there may be a lesson to be learned and he is trying to teach you, I am enough. What's incredible today is that Jesus has already proven to you he is enough. He has already proven that God is enough. When Jesus went to the cross, he bled, he died, he took upon us the full payment for our sins, and he declared three words, it is finished. Jesus proved he was enough for you and for me. And the Bible says that if we place our faith and trust in his finished work, we will be saved. What could God do in your life What could God do in your marriage, in your kids' lives, if you learn to lean on God, to walk in faith, and to seek the eternal, and to be able to boldly declare, God, you are enough. And I live not for the here and now, but I live for you, my King. If God was enough for you in your marriage and your kids' lives, you know what I think? I think that if we had a church of people who believed that, not just up here, but in here, and it came out here and here, we would have a church of people, and to borrow a quote from the pastor John Wesley, he says, people would come for miles to watch us burn. I believe that we would have a church so dedicated, so on fire for God, that people would take notice, not of us, but of the God who is able to satisfy. And that is my prayer for us, that we would learn tonight the very important lesson that it's life's not about the things of this world, it's not about our careers or our family or our trust, the things we trust in our reputations, our friendships, God is enough, and God alone is who we ought to live for. Would you bow your heads with me?